0: Hey, what's up? Suzanne here, producer of Midwesternish. You know this podcast is only made possible because listeners like you
1: support it. That means donating your money. So if you want to help us out and give us a donation, go to kcur.org slash Midwesternish and click on that donate button at the top of the page. All right, thanks.
0: What do
2: you remember? About school lunch, pizza was the best.
0: I have fond memories of eating chili. I
2: was always excited about the pickles.
0: Grilled cheese. Oh, I hated them all.
2: We all ate lunch at school in some form or another when we were kids. But did you really understand what went into making that happen?
1: You know, it seems so simple. Kids are hungry. We prepare food. We give it to them. Done.
2: There is a lot more to it than that.
1: It is a crazy complicated system.
2: From a dot in the middle of the map, this is Midwestern-ish. I'm Gina Kaufman. We produce a lot of food here in the middle of the country. Some might say too much. And yes, that has everything to do with school lunch. On this episode, the politics and passion behind school lunch. It's all connected to money, agriculture, and a cave.
1: So underneath Kansas City is, who knew, this enormous storage facility. They are these limestone tunnels where they store dairy and cheese and and goodness, probably all kinds of other things.
2: Jane Black wrote an article for the Huffington Post called Revenge of the Lunch Lady. It's a fascinating journey through the incredibly strange realities of our country's school lunch program. It started in 1946 after World War II. It was actually driven by military leaders who were concerned
1: that after the war there weren't going to be enough kids to go into the army. They wanted healthy kids. And so Congress set up this program that was set to benefit two groups of people, children in schools and farmers. And the idea was that the government would take surpluses that farmers had, whatever they may be, and they would give them or sell them at a very low price, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that, to schools who would use the food to feed the kids, right?
2: Okay, so it's basic economics, solving two problems at once. How do you win wars? You make sturdy little soldiers. At the same time, farmers are growing all this food. So much food, they can't sell it all. So you take all the extra food the farmers can't sell, and you use it to make those little soldiers by putting it on a tray in a cafeteria. School. Lunch. So that sounds
1: fine, except... Of course, there were immediately conflicts of interest and anybody who follows Congress now knows that Congress cares a lot more about people who vote than people who don't vote and kids don't vote. In 1981, what had happened was the dairy producers were producing milk and producing milk and the government said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with all of this?
2: The answer exists in the form of 200 million pounds of surplus butter and cheese stored in caves under Kansas City. It's frozen and stacked in blocks. 200 million pounds of it in a cave. It's
1: incredible, right? So they they decide, okay, well, we'll buy all of this and we'll give it to the kids. Well, that was right at the point, if you remember back to the 80s, when all of a sudden everybody decided they were terrified of fat. And so they started to say, oh, people should eat less fat at that exact moment that we were giving the kids all this cheese. Well, then what happened was, was because the farmers had somebody to buy all this cheese, they said, well, look, now we have a market for it. Let's produce more cheese. So they kept producing cheese.
2: I mean, I love cheese, so I don't immediately see the problem. But here's what happened next. So then the government said, "Okay,
1: we're going to pay you to slaughter the cattle so that there are fewer cows to produce milk, and then we'll buy all the beef from you. And so then they ended up giving the kids all of these cheeseburgers right at the time when they were supposed to be eating less fat. And so you see, you know, it, there are just um, uh, dozens and dozens of examples over the seven, 60 or 70 years of the program where you're trying to help two groups of people, but they don't really need the same thing.
2: So the school lunch program is actually beholden to agricultural interests? Yeah, it is. The scariest examples come from the 70s and 80s. Lately, the Department of Agriculture has been trying to clean up those school lunch donations, make them healthier.
1: If they're going to give you cans of green beans, for example, they're going to be low sodium. If they're going to give you peaches, they're going to be in juice, not in syrup. The problem in recent years, interestingly, has been Congress. And you know, every time the, uh, the Department of Agriculture tries to tighten up the nutrition standards to say, well, we're not going to give them, you know, as many French fries, you know, the, the, the Congress, the senators who represent potato producing states say, wait a minute, <laughs> everybody needs to be eating potatoes because they're really healthy.
2: Americans love their potatoes. And no wonder potatoes are nutritious, delicious, Well,
1: I mean, they're not really healthy if you eat them all, you know, French fries every day. The government has always had nutrition standards. They were sort of lousy for a long time. Um, There have been different pushes at different times to improve them. But I, I think a lot of the credit for, you know, the big leaps forward came with Michelle Obama in 2010.
0: We want to eliminate this problem of childhood Mm -hmm. obesity in a generation.
2: Right, I remember that. Michelle Obama made reducing childhood obesity a big part of her
0: platform as First Lady. We want to get parents information so that they can make good decisions. Uh, We want to improve the quality of food in our schools.
2: And a lot of people got behind that, moms and farmers. It's hard to argue against healthy food for kids, right? And thanks to new regulations, it's now a requirement for schools to put fruits and vegetables on their lunch menus, which seems like a total no-brainer. But wait, there's more.
1: They also require, when the kid goes down the line, that they have to take the orange. They can't just take the chicken nuggets and the strawberry milk. They have to take the orange. And Can
2: they throw you know, it out on, off of their tray at the end of the meal? See, I knew you were going to
1: say that. And yes, they can. Um, they're more likely to eat it if it's on the tray. But a lot of schools have set things up where I forget what they call them, share bins, where if you're not going to eat your orange, you put it in the share bin. You don't just throw it in the trash. And then somebody who might want it or who is hungry, and there are a lot of children in this country who are hungry, can take it. Or they put them, you know, they they, they save them and they send them home in backpacks over the weekend to kids who need them.
2: So you've just hinted at this other consideration, and it's a huge one. That's who can afford school lunch because it's only free to some Students And that's tricky. I mean, it's an issue that's in the news right now because New Mexico has just passed a law against what they're calling lunch shaming. That is this practice of simply not feeding kids whose lunch bills haven't been paid.
1: One of the things that drove that, just so your listeners know, is there was a I saw it on social media. A school had sent a child home with a stamp on his arm that said lunch money. Uh You know, I mean, imagine being a child and being held out like that. But so if you will just indulge me for one second to go again, back to history. So school lunch originally was to feed everybody. And then there have been a number of school lunch scandals along the way. In the 60s, what they discovered when they did this report was that the way that the program was set up meant that the poorest schools sort of ironically didn't have enough money to feed their kids. And so Congress wanted to fix this and they said, okay, we're going to require that anybody whose family earns, you know, a certain amount of money is guaranteed a lunch. And that was that was meant well. What happened, of course, because there are always unintended consequences, right, is that it sort of transformed what was a feeding program for children into a welfare program. So the kids who were getting the lunch, you know, they were the poor kids. They were the kids who couldn't afford to bring their own lunch. So, one of the things that schools have tried to do is move away from that and say, we're just gonna feed everybody. It takes away the stigma, right? Because everybody's eating. It isn't a question of, you get free lunch and you don't. But what's happened is, is that the conservatives, um, you know, they're Republicans, generally, have said, well, wait a minute, there's no such thing as a free lunch.
2: So on every cafeteria tray, wherever school lunch is served, There's basically, as I am coming to understand it, a huge helping of politics, economics, and agriculture. And I wonder how anyone actually manages to think about cooking. I mean, making and (laughs) serving food that tastes good, that these kids are going to want to eat, that these kids are going to enjoy eating.
1: I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, it's funny, personally... The way that I got into covering school lunches, you know, I was a food writer and I was writing about food and I was living in Washington and this was a big issue in the early Obama years. And you sort of enter this world. It is this Alice in Wonderland like world where it's curiouser and curiouser wherever you go and. Um, And you have to spend an enormous amount of time figuring it out. And that, I think, is the problem.
2: So it's a lot to figure out, and someone's got to do it every day in every school or else kids don't eat. And I just want to say, feeding kids is incredibly stressful. I have one kid to feed at home, but trying to get it done in the time I have within a reasonable budget and getting the food groups in and steering clear of pesticides... I love cooking and it makes me want to tear my hair out.
1: You need somebody who understands budgets. You need someone who can manage a staff. You need someone who understands nutrition because, unlike a restaurant operation, you know, the USDA is coming in and saying that over a course of the week, these you know, 10 meals that you're serving can only have this many grams of sodium and this many grams of fat. I mean, imagine doing that at your own house. It's all you can do to get the food on the table, right? Yeah. And then, and then you're doing it all for, you know, $3 a meal. And that includes the labor that goes into preparing it. And so, you know, there are all these people who come in from the outside and say, oh, you should prepare food from scratch. Well, you have to pay the cooks to do that. And you only have
2: $3 a meal. So it's a really, really hard job. The job she's talking about might officially be called something like director of food services, but we are talking about the infamous lunch lady. Um,
0: excuse me, isn't there anything here that doesn't have meat in it? Possibly the meatloaf. Lunch lady Doris, why are you here?
1: Budget cuts. They've even got groundskeeper Willie teaching French. I think that, you know, one of the problems is is we haven't valued that job. We haven't valued it in terms of finances nor just in terms of stature in the community. Lunch lady land. <laughs> and I think that, you know, one thing we all should do is, you know, go in and thank our <laughs> food service director and give her a pat on the back and see what we could do to help because they have a really hard job. <laughs>
2: People do this job and take it seriously every day school is in session. They basically run restaurants with all the pressure of a professional kitchen, but a lot more rules and none of the glory. We don't get into this profession to make a lot of money. People like Leah Schmidt. She's been doing this job for 25 years. 25 years in a school cafeteria, turning food from our fields and frozen butter from subterranean caves into meals for hundreds of kids, arguably the pickiest eaters in America. Turns out, this is her lifelong passion.
0: I actually worked in the school cafeteria when I was in sixth grade. I went to a very, very small elementary school here in the Kansas City area. There were only 12 of us in the class, so if we were caught up on our work, he would kind of farm us out to other areas of the school and the school lunch um, ladies were were where I went to work. It was great, you know, I have really wonderful memories of Mrs. Tillery was her name, so I still remember my school lunch lady from my sixth grade.
2: Leah loves coming up with new dishes like sriracha chicken over brown rice. That's a popular one. But it always
0: comes back to taking care of kids. And I got into it really because um, I could have summers off with my my kids. Um, I had a two-year-old and a seven-year-old at the time, and and the hours were good. Um, I was off on days when they were off school, and, and it gave me an opportunity to be kind of a stay-at-home mom in a way. So then thinking of
2: that as like like a profession that was part of your role as a parent, did you think of that as sort of an extension of feeding your kids?
0: And, and I think a lot of us do. Um, that we all consider our students to be our kids. I think that every single person who works in school meals would love to be able to do exactly what Jane said, and that's feed all the students for free and not really have to worry about who doesn't have lunch money today. It's It's a situation that all of us really hate to deal with. And I've seen so many school lunch professionals, ladies that work in the cafeteria, pay for students' meals. So, out of
2: their own pockets. Out
0: of their own pockets, yes.
2: I'm not sure if I really ever took the time to properly thank my lunch lady. Worse than that, I don't know if I even introduced myself or asked how she was doing. I highly doubt I said goodbye when I graduated, even though I can still picture her smiling at me as she passed me a giant plate of beef stroganoff. That's the school lunch I liked best. I did walk back into the cafeteria years later, and that's when I realized how tiny everything was. The tables, the chairs, it all just looked normal back then. But when it comes to school lunch... It is this
1: Alice in Wonderland-like world where it's curiouser and curiouser wherever you go.
2: What looks big is small, and what we underestimate is huge. Whether it's the hard work of a lunch lady or the amount of old dairy frozen in our caves. So thanks to my lunch lady, all the lunch ladies and the lunch men, damn it. And the farmers and Congress, but mostly the lunch ladies for feeding America's hungry future. You've been listening to Midwesternish, a podcast from KCUR Studios. Suzanne Hogan is our producer and our editor is Sylvia Maria Gross. I'm Gina Kaufman and we're trying to put our finger on all those weird little Midwesternisms that that make this part of the country, I don't know, special. If you've noticed an odd little quirk, please tell us about it. You can do that on Twitter. We're at Midwesternish, or we've set up a voicemail line. Just keep your messages to less than a minute. The number to call is 816-235-2797. I'll say that again. It's 816-235-2797, and that's a wrap for this episode, but we'll be back. We love you, Midwest.